Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Fire off the evening gun. Welcome to the podcast. Father John. Father Sean. Uh, round two here. Back at it again. Happy summer, everyone. Happy summer. It's still the same rainy weather that it was three minutes ago when we recorded, but today... Uh, but six weeks later. Six weeks later. This will be coming out on right around the 20th of July, uh, so hopefully everybody's having a, a blessed and restful summer, and uh, we will be in the mountains at this point. That's why we're doing this in advance, so at least I will be. Yeah, you're always in the mountains, but right after this, we'll be on... Um Summer conference. That's right. With, with Dr. Larry Chap. Dr. Larry Chap, the man. If you have not, uh, if you do not see, haven't seen his new book out, Confessions uh, of a Catholic Worker, awesome. We're all reading it this summer, and then we're going to uh, put some whiskey in him and some cigars in his hand and, and get him to <laughs> talk and, uh, and go deep into the things of life. And so we're very excited for that. So that'll be, stay tuned. Maybe we can even get him on the podcast. That'd be fun. We should. We, we should, should we should bring the gear for that. He does have his own podcast too, right? He does. Gaudi Mitzbez twenty two. So, uh, I have moved in. Uh, the boys have moved out. Uh, in the summer, I moved to the Companions House, which is five minutes down the road from where I am. Long time listeners will know of this place. It was our um, recording studio uh, early on, and uh, a house that our association has owned for the last fifteen years. Um, but whenever I move into the house, there are certain, uh, I would say natural <laughs> tensions that arise, uh, that are latent with a German, really with a German and Colerick. a Swede named father Mike Rapp. Um, uh, Mike and I are the two most opposite people on the planet. We love each other much. Uh, but he is chaos. I am cosmos. He is the Dionysian. I am the Apollonian. <laughs> he is ying. I'm yang. I don't know what those two are, but we're just oil and water in so many ways. And we laugh about these things. One of the things we don't laugh about is um, when I go into purge mode and cleaning mode, there's no laughter. And so yesterday, we had a very successful purging of the shed. Now, I was in, I was horrified, okay, by the <laughs> You state. said you couldn't even walk on it, there, you walk couldn't on see, the floor. You couldn't see the ground. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to put my mountain bike in there. Um, and I just had to throw it on a pile of stuff. And then I look at Wunsch's car parked next to the shed. And I'm like, this is exactly it. This guy lives. This is total suck bottom. Uh, this guy lives like a bomb went off. Uh, he's living. Like, this is not a human existence, the way that Wunsch lives. Rap, much more ordered. Uh, but he is a creature of habit. And he is also has a, has a love of poverty and simplicity. And so he just doesn't get rid of things thinking, Surely we could use this uh, mm. particular oil, you know, that we, I don't know, used for, and all of his automotive stuff. He's kind of a craftsy guy, kind of guy. Um, I have none of that. I have no desire to keep these things. So uh, the purge was successful because Rap and I intercepted, and there was this moment of like, all right, we need to avoid World War Three here, where I throw away, you know, the eighth uh, gas container, which was actually Grandma Mary's that she brought oh, no. over from Stockholm. Uh, you know, this is the kind of thing right. um, that I that seems to happen. And so we successfully navigated the purge. I got rid of what I wanted to get rid of, and he got to keep what he got to keep, and uh, we're all happy. But we still have a lawnmower, right? Absolutely good. And you can put the lawnmower in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the amazing thing is that it actually. And you can put it in a spot. And believe it or not, it can go into the same spot every time. Every time. 
So we'll see how long this shed lasts. But uh, for somebody who lives kind of in the frontal cortex most of the time, it's nice to do things like that. I yeah. know you're good with tactile kind of projects, woodworking, but it was nice to just do something. I was like, wow, I feel so domesticated today. <laughs> I cleaned the shed. Uh, but it was an absolute disaster. Yeah. Yeah, what a huge accomplishment to be able to look and, and see the progress. But those things can get gross because, like, you don't go into the shed pretty much all winter long. You don't know what it looks like. You're only in the shed four or five months of the year. It's just the summer months. And then you're like, how do we get all these things? And I'm right. sure, like, squirrels and rats get in there too. So, yeah. And so I use that uh, not just as just such classic and amazing banter, um, but also <laughs> to paint an image of what I'm going to do today, which is. I'm cleaning out the shed Great on, on the two Balthazar uh, topics that I am sick and tired of hearing stupid, not stupid, thoughtful, maybe misinformed people misinformed make stupid claims about Hans Urs von Balthazar. I'm sick and tired of it and I'm cleaning out the shed and it's something that I'm going to do seasonally uh, until I stop, <laughs> I guess until like, I guess entropy will always kind of uh, cause this, but um, now the people listening to this, the poor podcast listeners are like, we know you like Balthazar. You talk about him all the time. We're on your side, man. Like the, the, the staunch, you know, stick in the mud kind of paleotomist is not going to listen to this podcast and not going to be converted to my kind of just brilliant. But uh, a listener could send them the podcast. They could send it the podcast. So, but I, I'm just, it's spring cleaning season. I just taught eschatology. I just am like, we're gonna we're gonna clean out the shed today. Dare we hope that Hans Urs von Balthasar is a heretic? <laughs> that is the title of this podcast. Dare we hope? That is hilarious. And what you will find is there are limitations on what we hope. Uh, one of the, uh, one I of, have a yeah, question. Yeah, one of the good things is that I have a limit here uh, because I have to leave uh, in now forty minutes. So Great. you're in luck. All right. I could go on this for hours. Well, and I'm hours excited because because yeah. I got a little bit of this in, in anthropology, I believe. But if I'm not mistaken, the two big things that Balthazar kind of gets a bad rap for would be one, uh, his book Dare We Hope, where he says Dare We Hope All Men Are Saved. Right? Uh, is he a universalist? Right. And the other one would be his descent into hell theory uh, that Jesus uh, passively entered into hell as opposed to actively like a Navy SEALs mission. You got it. Those are the two things. I'm so proud of you. All right. My, my student <laughs> is uh, he's becoming the master. It's, it's uh, wonderful. Yeah, those are the two big questions. Now, um, maybe as a prequel to that, it's one thing if you don't like somebody. It's another thing if you um, kind of exercise a kind of suspicion under the guise of charity mm -hmm. about that person. Right, and this is what's happened to Hans Urban Balthasar's name. Nobody actually knows what they're talking about, um, but they're like, uh, you know, better to stay with the tradition, right? You know what I mean? And it's like what? they become parrots. They heard that from someone else, right? Right. It's like, and, and I, I, it just drives me nuts. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of pathos in this podcast, um, but I even hear like, I don't want to give example. Well, I'll give an example, like. I heard some religious sisters talking about another community and they were doing this thing and it was all sugar coated. And I was, I was like, Oh God, like you're gossiping. Like you, this is, and this is what's happening with both. So it's like, that's theological gossip. You mm. don't know what you're talking about. You're throwing around the H bomb, uh, you know, that he's a heretic. And, but these are also not stupid people. And there's also reasons why 
we've come to misjudge this man. Mm. Uh, like, there's real reasons. And it's actually really understandable and legitimate. Uh, and the point today is we're cleaning out the shed because to say he's a heretic on the point of dissent or on his universalism is fallacious and it's ridiculous. It's just got to go. It's got to go out of the theological shed. And I'm saying this primarily fired up about this because last month, my Legatus chapter, I'm a chaplain for Legatus, they had Ralph Martin come. Now, I've heard that Ralph Martin is a real gentleman. I've heard he's a really good man. Like, um, But his kind of perpetuating this narrative um, is driving me crazy. And uh, again, feel free to disagree on this, but the scholarship has demonstrated that Ralph Martin and then Alyssa Lyra Pittstick's positions on these two issues, their read on Balthazar has been it has been deemed theologically wrong. Correct. It's, yeah. it's not right. Right. And and I can point people to different articles and things that they can read, but it's settled. Like the debate is over. You can still say, uh, yeah, but best to just read Aquinas these days. You know what I mean, Shawnee? Uh, it's like, yeah, Aquinas is amazing. He's probably the greatest ever. He's not the only voice. He's not the only Catholic voice, and he's not the tradition, and that's a careful Correct. thing. We yep. got to be just very careful. It's like, because it's a slippery slope, folks, and uh, future president Taylor Marshall is a great example <laughs> of how you can just go off. Yeah. You're like on the cliff, and then it's like, yeah, you start with Balthazar, and then you got to hang Ratzinger, and then you realize, ooh, John Paul's tied in that too, and it's like, well, you know what? This really all goes back to the Second Vatican Council. We'll throw the baby out with the bathwater, right. and next thing you know, you're... you're you're perpetuating a narrative and you're building a culture of a reactive and caustic Catholicism, which is on the rise, especially with young Catholics and is very concerning for us young priests. Right. Yeah. I was shocked when Bishop Barron uh, was, was almost deemed a heretic, but just like totally criticized for his position on, on Balthazar for liking Balthazar for quoting Balthazar all the time. People started to say, Oh, Bishop Barron must be a heretic too if he's quoting Balthazar. It's like what? Right. Like this, this makes no sense. Like, uh, and we could we'll probably get into like what a heretic actually means and is. But Balthazar was never even close to that. He was never obstinate. And I think if he was ever asked like, "Do you believe this?" or "Do you think all this?" or like, "Can you articulate this differently?" he would he would probably postulate and just say like, "This is a theory." Like I'm just right. I'm, I'm speculating. It's it's a little bit of speculative theology, but he's he's a phenomenal theologian. He's also a holy man who prayed and he wanted to be close to the Lord. And I think he is very close to the Lord. Yeah. Garansky, uh, who was a big Balthasar guy, um, used to, he was, he was a fiery personality, but he was also wise. Garansky, um, Balthasar too, but Garansky, he had, I think as you get older, you just realize like these things are not worth fighting. Um, but he used to say when people would, these Ralph Martin types, when they would, go after both star. He's like, it's like watching people throw a rock at the Matterhorn. Hmm. That's how he described it. And I think that that's, that's really the case. It's like, just stop, step, step back for a second, read him. And then you can make your decision. Like you don't need to. And, and I hope that in my classes, um, though I've been called by colleagues behind my back, a raging Balthazarian, you know, <laughs> like, um, it, uh, it's it's like Balthazar doesn't want Balthazarians. Balthazar is just reading scripture and he's reflecting on the tradition and the state of the church in the moment and he's doing something really radical. It's going to take centuries to kind of assimilate this guy. Um, I've been reading Balthazar consistently for 15 years and I feel like I'm just starting to get my head around wow. what he's doing. Wow. Like just starting to. 
Yeah. And I've read everything uh, that he has uh, written that's in English. Um, I mean, it, it's just such a massive scope. And I, I, I don't have a lot of time to kind of go into this, but the man has written uh, the bibliography of his works, just the names of the, of the articles and the books that he's written is 215 pages long. Just the biography. Right. Um, so we're talking about an intellectual here and a writer of a scope that is so massive um, that we can't, you can't even begin to get your head around it um, when when you read uh, when you start kind of getting into this man's mind. Um, now he breaks all the rules in terms of writing, prose, and style, or not prose, but just like in general. He's an academic. He's difficult to read. Um, he's a creative, brilliant man on a level that that we don't even understand. Um, he's written more books than most people will read in their lifetime. Um, and yet somehow Joe Schmo Catholic in the pews who even goodwilled people are just kind of like, yeah, but isn't that guy a heretic? It's like, how, how did we get to this, this point, uh, where you become kind of labeled as the Balthazarian, which means you hate St. Thomas. And it's just like, what? whoa, whoa, whoa. This is, this is an absolutely insane, insane narrative. It's being perpetuated by a lot of people, some mm-hmm. of whom are culpable, um, and uh, that needs to change. Hmm. So as in the words of the Archdiocese of Denver, it's time to change the game, right? Were you a priest for that whole thing? I, I wasn't. It's time to change the game. We have this kind of dumb video. I better be careful calling it dumb because the Archbishop doesn't listen to this sometimes, but it was, it's time to change the game. It's time to change the game. So we're going to change the game. I, I'm, I'm holding a pile of my lecture notes from eschatology here. Uh, we're not going to get through all this stuff, but... That's, this is like a ream thick, people, This, yeah. this these lecture notes. <laughs> I, so I, I just will say... Um, the fundamental problem in the misinterpretation of von Balthasar is a failure to grasp the form of what he's doing. That's the first thing I'll say. That there is a form. When people write, when they, it's a self-expression. Uh, so a theologian is reflecting on, on the state, uh, or as, on revelation. He's using his reason. But it's always with a form. Like there's always a personal way of doing it. There's a style, so to speak. And the form you would say is uh, personal to each writer, to each author. Yeah, I think so. And for a, for a, a Catholic theologian, it's going to be enveloped in the form of Christ. So there's a form hmm. for how theology is. Mm-hmm. This is why uh, you know we're not writing. Um, when somebody's like, we're going to reinterpret, you know, the fifth chapter of Luke according to kind of contemporary queer theory or something like this. Like these are articles that are written in the scripture world because they're all freaking nuts over there. But um, that doesn't work. That's a violation of, of just the form of Christian life right. because you can't reinterpret some kind of ideological framework upon uh, as a perspective that's going to deconstruct or demythologize Christianity. You, you can't do that. Time out. Hmm. So what can you do? Well, the, the first criteria is is this Christian in the sense that has this person taken on the form of Christ, that their mind has been transformed by the truth of the gospel, and that their self-expression theologically is an articulation of the orthodox teaching of the integrity and the, and the, the authentic teaching of the church. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one aspect. Is For a Catholic theologian, it's ecclesial. So the question of heresy does matter. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it's a radical... Um, yeah, it's just it's an absolutely unacceptable and cheap theological position to just say somebody like Balthazar, if you haven't read him, is just not a Catholic theologian. Mm. 
which is what Martin and company are, are, are willing to say. And, and they're thereby not worth reading if you're, if you're a Catholic. Yeah. Which I think is, uh, very, very strong, uh, uh, too strong, honestly. Um, and we can't become parish just because someone says it doesn't mean you have to make the same conclusion. Um, so, so that, that's the, that's just the first thing. It's just like, you don't know the man, you miss the man. Um, and there's just an interesting line here that Nick Healy, who I love, uh, writes, he wrote this, this really beautiful article worth reading Vatican II and the Catholicity of salvation, a response to Ralph Martin. He wrote this eight years ago. Um, this should be bedtime reading for Catholic families at uh, John Paul the Great. I, <laughs> just joking, kind of. Uh, but he, he quotes Aquinas here. Um, and uh, Aquinas is one of his principles for interpretation for St. Thomas uh, when he's interpreting the fathers is that what do you do when there's apparent contradiction? Or there's seeming contradiction, I should say. In the fathers. In the fathers. And this is what St. Thomas says. If we encounter sayings in the ancient fathers that seem incautious, their statements are not to be ridiculed or rejected. One ought rather to interpret them reverently. With charity. Exponere reverente. So a generous interpretation is not, is not only a moral obligation, it's just, it's the most just and adequate way of arriving at the truth. So we're, f- so the first thing that I wanted to say was just, you're missing the form. You're looking at the content, you're pulling out, like any, you can take anybody and say, I'm going to take all the worst texts, the worst things that Sean Conroy ever said, that I'm going to fragment the mm-hmm. little fragments from your homilies. I'm going to take them out of context and then I'm going to build up um, a case for why you're a heretic. I could do that. Right. I really think I could. And I probably would, <laughs> would be found guilty. Yeah. I think I could do that. Uh, but that's, as he says, um, this is not just a moral obligation to give a generous interpretation, to have reverence for somebody. Um, it's also a ju- it's just. It's, it's a requirement of justice and, hmm. and honestly a requirement of the truth. Uh, so that's, that's, I just think that's a helpful second line uh, in terms of you have to realize that when you make a judgment, you are inter- you're making an interpretation. Mm-hmm. And what are the principles that undergird your, your interpretation? Are they fundamentally charitable and reverent? Just because you're so super Catholic, because you got your veil on it at your Latin mass, doesn't mean that you get the right to just make ridiculous, uncharitable statements. And it's a lack of charity to von Balthasar that drives me crazy right. all the time. It drives me just crazy. So yeah, yeah, we've lost the virtue of intellectual charity. I actually think Aquinas is one of the best at this because <laughs> what what he'll do is like, uh, he'll say said contra whatever, but then he'll he'll quote like Saint Augustine saying something, and he goes, Saint Augustine said this, but what he actually means by this yeah. is da 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 da, um, and so he's interpreting it in light of the form of Christ, as you mentioned, to say, here's what's really going on, and we can always do that in charity. Yeah, we need it. to, we have to. So that's the, those are the the two. I like to do everything in threes, but for the sake of uh, brevity here, we'll just leave it at, at those two things. Think about the form. It's not just content, right? But when Father Sean gives a homily, this podcast, there's a way, there's a style. And if you don't understand that, then you're probably going to misinterpret it. And especially if you just, for whatever reason, are not checking yourself and saying, maybe I am lacking reverence. We all do this all the time, all the time. We're all making false judgments, rash judgments. I am a super judgmental person. Um, I am shocked and scandalized when I'm actually recollected enough to realize the judgments that I make on people. And the easiest way to do that, it, to make an uncharitable judgment on anything, 
is to be totally detached from the person. Hmm. So I get on an airplane and I look around and I'm like, man, that guy is like 300 pounds. Thank God I'm not sitting next to him. <laughs> and then like this person's staring at me and I think, oh, it's the caller because you're probably a fallen away Catholic. And they're not. They're just like staring because they're exhausted or whatever. And then you talk to people and you realize, oh, these are actually kind of mm-hmm. friendly people. You know? right. That's not always the case. But um, I think that the best thing to do if you want to kind of reinforce biases and judgments is just stay as far away as possible so that you can just stay kind of locked in, in the slaver of your own mind on this topic. So I invite people to actually read this stuff. Um, but first to get a little introduction to it. So as you said, um, there are two basic issues that were theologically controversial, uh, and that have been resolved by the theological, by the Catholic theological community. All right. And those are Balthazar's descent into hell theology, and then the question of, dare we hope that all men be saved? Okay. okay. Which one would you like to start with? Um, dare we hope. Dare we hope. Was dürfen wir hoffen? That's the title in German? That's the title in German. Which translates to what? What ought we to hope? Yeah, so it's not dare we hope. I asked Joe Fessio this question. Um, who's the founder of Ignatius Press. Yep. I feel like I just did this podcast, but maybe not. I'm just We're cleaning out the shed, people. It's springtime. <laughs> Um, and I said, why did you name it that? It sounds so much edgier. And I think they kind of wanted it to be, mm. he didn't tell me that he's, like, I don't know why we named it. I was like, okay, that's not helpful. But, um, but yeah, was dürfen wir hoffen? What ought one to hope? What should we hope? Um, is that what you wanted the first one? Dare we hope? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, let's do it. So this is, uh, Balthazar writing a book, not his best. Okay. Not his best. Um, he wrote the article uh, and then combined it in Dare We Hope is actually two different essays. One is on the question of universal salvation and, and the other one is on um, this question of Dare We Hope. And, and so it was a long kind of conversation that happened primarily through the 80s where he was getting blasted right away um, by people um, on this topic. And, and he, he is a fighter. I mean, Balthazar, was, I think he was a consummate gentleman, but also like he, he was, he was a, he was a real, uh, a real warrior, uh, in that sense. So he's getting a lot of flack for this. Basically the position is this, uh, you, what you cannot hold as a Catholic, what is heretical would be to hold, um, what we could call a, a certain form of apocatastasis. Um, and we'll explain what that means in, in one second. Um, which means that in the end of time, all things will be uh, reconciled. And uh, so uh, apocatastasis is, is a, is a hapax legomenon, which means what? One word. It's, it's only a, found one, one time. time. It's in the Bible one time. Uh, Acts uh, chapter 3, where um, Peter is giving this uh, speech, and he says uh, apocatastasis is the Greek um, for the universal restoration of all things. So in the end times, something is going to, it's all going to kind of come together happily ever after. Um, Origen, who's very platonic in his thinking, is a, is, is a father of the church or, um, in the third century and is uh, writing about this and is reflecting on, well, Jesus's victory over the cosmos is so complete and total that it seems like the power of that would be limited if there were not, uh, were it not to all kind of come together in the end. Uh, happily ever after, Satan, angels, everybody, right? That 
there, there just should be this kind of everything kind of comes together in the end and, and everybody's in heaven. And this is an instinctive thing. I mean, I was talking to the, the buyer children who are like my um, theological uh, debaters all the time. And they're like, should we pray for Satan? And we're mm-hmm. explaining why that is. But when you're 12 and you have this instinct, it's like, well, there's something there. Yeah. Um, but the church has formally declared um, after origin, uh, his successors get more and more radical. And there is a couple of definitions uh, that are very clear in the church. One is this. Christ's atonement does not extend to fallen angels. Okay? So, apocatastasis, which is a biblical word, uh, cannot mean that uh, Jesus died for the fallen angels and that they are restored after life. Mm-hmm. Right? Secondly, with the arrival of death, the possibility of merit or demerit or conversion ceases. So there was a number of fathers in the early church who really thought that there was this kind of conversion that was going to happen to fallen souls and to fallen angels after death, and that at the end times, everything's going to kind of get worked out. Mm. There's a really deep sense of that. You cannot hold that as a Catholic. Why? Because that has been solemnly defined by the magisterium, by the teaching of the church, that this is not proper to the form, the larger form. It's not integral, uh, and it's outside of the, the bounds of conversation. So you cannot hold that position a kind of radical universalism, Mm -hmm. the whole universe being reconciled to God. Um, There are some souls that will be in hell for eternity. um, And there are some that are not. This is the, this is the question. Or I should say more clearly, the souls in hell would be there for an eternity and the souls in heaven would be so. Right. Yeah. And the church will always, uh, or has always proclaimed and declared saints, um, those who are in heaven, but the church will never proclaim anyone's in hell. And I think there's wisdom in that, but I think one of the challenges accepting that is just like, oh, does that mean like like we, we ought to hope, right? We ought to hope that even the hardest of hearts will be converted before their death. But after you die, that's the decision for, for all eternity. Either you're going to hell or heaven, and those who go to purgatory will go to heaven eventually. So that that's, that's yeah, that's right on. Um, so the question, though, becomes... so. The, the question that Balthazar is asking in the book is, what are we supposed to hope for? So you're living in a secularized, technological, uh, modern world that has largely rendered the God question um, either completely disinteresting or just, it's just, it doesn't, it's, people aren't even thinking about God anymore. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, it's basically an unthinkable thing for many people just living in kind of affluent technological society. So Balthazar is saying, well, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? The temptation is to say, uh, is to get all kind of apocalyptic and crazy and to say, well, they're all going to hell because that's what happens when you don't know Jesus. You go to hell. And it's like, true. Okay. But, but is that actually what we should presume? Hmm. So Balthazar's challenge in his conversation is with Augustine on this point. He's not just saying, all dogs go to heaven, everything's great, yay, origin was right, and the church was wrong. He's saying, Augustine, who's watching the Roman Empire fall, when he's writing the city of God, and everything is collapsing, civilization is collapsing, Augustine has a very dark read on it, and he says something, and he presumes something called the Masa Damnata, which is this operative presumption that says, basically, the majority of humanity is in hell. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is... Which uh, Masa is also a heresy condemned by the church. Is it? I believe so. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that. Um, 
but we as you said like we, we don't actually put souls in hell but there's this kind of working presumption that the majority of uh souls are just in hell and then there's some other tricky things as well i mean so um and and again um balthazar loves augustine and he loves saint thomas but he's gonna he's gonna critique thomas on this one point this is from robert Barron wrote an introduction to dare we hope the most striking and original contribution that Balthazar makes to this discussion, I believe, is his critique of St. Thomas's view, shared widely by the classical tradition, that part of the joy of heaven is to witness the suffering of the damned. Hmm. So Balthazar is going to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push against that. I don't know if, if we're going to go that far. Now, Thomas is no fool, and he's got, he's got a reasoning, and he's got an argument for why that's the case, but... It just doesn't resonate with him as a man to say mm-hmm. part of the joy of my eternal bliss in heaven is is rejoicing and seeing the suffering of the damn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also to to live in such a way as to presume that the majority of humanity is going to is in hell and will go to hell. He's that's what he's that's what he's challenging. Mm-hmm. That is that's what he's going against. Okay. So enter Ralph Martin, who uh, writes his book, Will Many Be Saved? What Vatican Do Actually Teaches and Its Implications for the New Evangelization. Uh, long book, but basically um, he's going to pair Balthazar and Rahner and say, these are the two guys that led the council to really kind of say the reality of hell um, doesn't it doesn't come to bear anymore. This is kind of a medieval thing that, um, that we kind of used to talk about a lot. And now it's just we don't have to worry about the question of damnation. And until we do that, we're not going to be missionary mm. in our mode. So it's it's a slick argument. I don't think it's true, and I definitely don't think it's fair to Balthazar, who wrote a book against Rahner, by the way. Uh, and so to pair them together is is a very kind of con- um, a very complicated thing. So Healy and some other guys are going to take this on, and it's a respectful theological conversation. And Martin is doing just what Balthazar is doing, which is that he's positing a theory theologically to say that he's making a claim. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the work of the theological community to, to kind of play that out, so to speak, to understand um, what does this work. Um, and Martin's vision sounds good in theory, right? When the reality of hell wanes, so too does missionary fervor. So we got to start, you got to start preaching about hell more if you want to wake people up to actually be Catholic. And again, we don't have time to go into this, but that just strikes us as, I, I think, it's, when you get out of our little Catholic bubble, you just say, really? Is that it? Is that is that it? Father Matt Book and I were talking about everybody runs to the Traddy Parish for Mass, but they don't go to confession there. Right. They go to confession to you guys. Why? Because yeah. they're terrified of, of the priests there. Right. Who, who get very focused on justice and very focused on moralism, and uh, they're not very merciful. Right. So that's just an example of Book was telling me about people who have left his church because they don't like the Novus Ordo. But their their friends are coming back to the faith, and they go to they go to book for confession, right? Because there's a kind of gentleness and charity in his pastoral style that's not driven by this kind of hardlining thing. So you just think about like as a pastoral approach, is this really the way to go about it? And I think so. The question is: Dare we hope? Dare we hope that all men be saved, um, or do we presume that the majority are? are not saved and we kind of work out of that that paradigm and we have to otherwise we're not going to take anything seriously in terms of being catholic that's that's really the question and I, this is this is for people to decide you can live either way 
it's your decision. Obviously, we have a very clear stance on, on how we think with it. But Balthazar is going to say, in the midst of a secularized world, we have to hope and we have to pray. And the church does not put any particular names in hell. It only puts names in heaven. We don't know the population of hell. Right. We don't know. And that's all he's saying. So he didn't jump off the cliff and say, there's nobody. He's just saying, we don't know. So why do you presume to know? Mm. That's where it's left at. I'll I'll leave you the final story, and then we'll move on to the second uh, question here. I was in Crested Butte, and forgive me if I've told this story. I think I've told every story, um, but I was with my buddy, uh, Mike Wright, and Mike uh, was getting into some of these kind of hardlining uh, positions. And I, I, we were sitting having a beer, and, and I said to him, you asked me to say mass this morning for uh, a 17-year-old kid in this town who committed suicide, hmm. right? And he said, yeah. And I said, was that guy baptized? And he said, no. And I said, did he have any sign whatsoever of faith or relationship with Jesus Christ? And he said, no. And I said, and yet you asked me to offer Mass, and we're praying for him. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, how could you presume that the majority of humanity is in hell and yet pray for this guy? Dare we hope that this guy can be saved? Balthazar, my friend Mike said, yeah, that's a good point. So <laughs> yeah. it's like we forget that the, the con- we lose the concrete. We abstract it when we start talking about universalism and these types of things. But when you really come down to it, it's every particular soul, I have to hope and believe and pray that they can be saved in this life. And I'm not making a statement about afterlife, and I'm not doing the kind of um, universalist kind of jumping jacks or these kind of things that, that happened and now have been condemned by the church. All right? Yeah, one thing that helps me with this, I don't know if this helps everyone, but um, we, pre- we we hope we have hope uh, in these souls that that God will have mercy upon them. But I love the Theresian, the Saint Therese analogy of we'll all be fully satisfied in heaven according to our capacity to be satisfied and to be filled. Mm. So uh, someone like I don't know Saint Therese, who who actually is a saint and lived a very holy life. They're going to have like a the size of a trash can, the size of a huge bucket, uh, capacity to be filled with grace, happiness, uh, eternal bliss, beatitude. But someone who did not live maybe the best life, but had a conversion at the end of life, they're going to be the size of a thimble, is what she says, and um, they're still going to be perfectly happy. But maybe one's going to be, uh, in a sense, more fulfilled because they have more capacity for that. Uh, and so I think. Um, we have hope that people, even if they have the, the simplest glimpse of conversion, that they'll be completely happy in heaven, even if it's the smallest little thumbtack or whatever. Yeah. So merit does matter. Right? Merit and does that, matter. And that's a whole yep. other kind of uh, conversation point. Merit being the, the way in which God's grace operates, but, but how we actually, our, our wills are actually at play. And that's, that, again, that's a whole other topic. So in terms of the size, so to speak. So we better move on. We're running out of time. Great. Second point, descent into hell. And these are tied a little bit. Um, And there's some other kind of deeper things. This is a very kind of cursory overview. But the descent into hell, uh, Balthazar has a different theological understanding of how that happened. And it is a theological perspective or opinion uh, argument that is different than the standard tradition mm-hmm. of the church liturgical and theological tradition not the teaching of the church correct all right but it's not to the point of uh 
dissent, meaning it's like disagreement with core church teaching, I would say. Absolutely. And, and so this has also been sorted. So this, this began with um, a theologian named Alyssa Lyra Pitstick, um, who, uh, who basically wrote this very long book um, laying out um, a theory that was ultimately kind of, the end of it was to kind of to hang Balthazar as, as a heretic on this topic. Basically to say, uh, that he has violated the uh, church's teaching on the descent into hell and therefore uh, is is a heretic. Now, heresy is uh, a very kind of canonic, a very specific canonical phrase. It means an obstinate denial of one of the teachings of the church. Obstinate. What does that mean? It means that the church has told you you're wrong and you keep saying, ah, well, screw you, you know. Right, no um, so repentance. There's an obstinacy. There's a denial of something that has been written uh, of one of the church's teachings that has been laid out. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, I'm fishing through all my notes here. I don't even know where this stuff. Okay. So trying to make this as short as possible. So light and darkness is the book that she writes. And this is basically the summary. Um, the tradition is fourfold on the descent. According to Pitstick, Christ descends into he- uh, descended in his soul. So this is Holy Saturday. Christ descended in his soul, united to his divine person, only to the limbo of the fathers. His power and authority are made known all throughout hell. He thereby accomplishes the two purposes of the descent, to liberate the just and to show forth the glory of the Father. Um, And then lastly, um, his descent was a glorious one, and Christ did not suffer the pain proper to the abodes of hell. Okay, so Christ's descent, he descends to the limbo of the fathers. He reveals his power. Uh, he fulfills, he liberates the just, uh, and that the descent was glorious. Her whole book and the whole argument is Balthazar gets two and three, but he fails in one and four, and therefore becomes, uh, it, is, it needs to be deemed as a heretic and, and really should not be read. Okay. So we'll just briefly touch on those two things. What does she mean by limbo of the fathers? Is this like the bosom of Abraham? Yep. So. <clears throat> Prior to the resurrection, the gates of hell and the gates of heaven are not open yet uh, for people to, to enter. Uh, you went to Sheol, as the scriptures will uh, talk about it. And in Sheol, there's kind of like a divide of the souls of the just and uh, the souls of the unjust. And so this is why um, one of the gospels, this is why I wish I knew scripture better, uh, talks about how uh, when, was it? Lazarus who died, um, this, the other Lazarus, the poor man, um, he goes to the bosom of Abraham in order to be comforted. That's where the souls of the just were. Um, and then Jesus on Holy Saturday would have gone down to, to them, just to the souls of the just, preached to them so as to liberate them and bring them into heaven. Right. So um, we know very little about the underworld in the ancient, in ancient time. And you just mentioned the word Sheol which is the Hebrew word. Hades is the Greek, Greek word. word. And infernum, which literally means the, the, the lower places, mm-hmm. like the lower place, ad infernum, um, is the Latin, where we get the word inferno, right? Hell. So, yeah, the, the, the typical tradition of the church, the kind of standard vision of it, is that hell is differentiated. So where does Christ descend to? Well, as you just said, the, there's this language that develops in the in the tradition in the, of the theological tradition of the church that says he doesn't actually go to hell proper. He goes to the the top part of hell, which is called the limbus patrum, right? So, 
limbo. This isn't ba- don't think babies. Okay, this is different. Uh, he descends to the limbo. Just means place, the place of the fathers. So the just souls are kind of in this holding place uh, until they are liberated by Christ. But he doesn't actually descend into uh, the place where souls are damned. What this presupposes is a differentiated hell prior to Christ. And that's where Balthazar is going to work and develop a theory that says it, maybe it's not differentiated. Hmm. Maybe differentiation happens with the descent in the same way that, uh, so he goes to hell, he descends to hell, Hades, Allah Hades, Sheol, but it's not differentiated into a place of the just and a place of the unjust. But because Jesus is descending, he hell is a, is a Christological reality in terms of the, the, the rejection of Christ happened in their life, but everything is drawn into the light in the same way that heaven is opened with Christ for the first time. So hell exists and, and souls are there, but Christ is the one who's actually, um, his judgment upon the world, which happens at the cross, uh, is actually the thing that affects and makes hell a place that makes this differentiation. So Balthazar says that. And then the other thing, the fourth point is um, the descent he describes as being a passive descent mm-hmm. and not active. As and you active said, active is yeah. the typical tradition, correct? Right. So Jesus dies and in his soul descends into hell or the limbus patrum, grabs the good guys, leaves the bad guys, boom, we're out. Rescue mission kind of style. Balthazar's vision is going to be different. He's going to say it's 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 a it's a descent uh, that is passive. So he's dead. He dies, and his soul goes as a dead man. And and when he reaches the bottom of hell, it's the power of the resurrection that ascends him. So it's kind of like, are you looking at Holy Saturday, which is the most mysterious day? The descent really is the most kind of we just. We have very little on this, even in Scripture. We don't understand this. It's a, it's a total mystery. There's silence on that day, uh, we, we, the way that we venerate it and we think about it. But are you looking at it from the perspective of Good Friday, or are you looking at it from the perspective of Holy Saturday? Hmm. I think the tradition largely has looked at it from, Holy, from, from Easter Sunday and to see the effects of the resurrection beginning at 3.01 on Friday. Hmm. Balthazar is looking at it as part of being human, having a human nature means dying and actually descending. And that's the place of, of the, uh, the resurrection and the conquest of death and the judgment. And this is a, this is an example of, again, you can glean these things out and say, well, that sounds crazy, but the church has never taught that the descent is active by its nature. Mm-hmm. And the church has never formally taught that the limbus patrum is actually this is not dogmatic. Correct. To say that this is a th- it's a theory. It's a really venerable and important theological theory. And Balthasar has specific reasons for, for laying this out. And if you don't understand his larger project, then it's going to be easy to say and to slip into this, even if you're a good mind and a good researcher like Pitstick, where you're just going in and saying, nope, he's wrong. Check, check equals heretic. And that's the problem that we face. Uh, our friend Bishop Barron uh, says at the beginning of, uh, of his work on Dare We Hope, he says, it's so interesting that a book that is condemned as being universalist starts with a word on judgment. 
that's the first thing that that Balthazar writes about, and he takes it very seriously. And the more that I dig dig into his eschatology, I realize that this notion of Christ bringing judgment to the world is what it's the chiaroscuro of everything. It draws the darkness is made is understood to be dark, and the light is made to see is light because this is how Christ is operative and working. So, if you don't understand his theory, his theology of judgment, if you don't understand his his theory of of beauty and glory then you're going to misinterpret how he understands a, a descent into hell can be passive, but also glorious. And again, these are kind of, we're getting into more nitty-gritty, fine-tuned stuff here. Um, so we'll probably just kind of close it there. But in soma, as the Italians would say, like in summary here. <laughs> you're going to let me talk? Let's be careful. That's that's all I'm saying. Let's be careful, let's be charitable, and let's let Sean talk. Go ahead. <laughs> Thanks, you. Thank you for your charity. I'm used there. to lecturing. Sorry. No, this is good. And uh, for me, one of the things I love to meditate on, especially around Good Friday, is uh, St. Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Like, what was it like for Christ to be on the cross? And I truly believe that the main suffering of the cross is not a physical suffering. It's the spiritual suffering of him becoming sin and descending to the depths of, of distance from the Father. Now, of course, the father and son can't be separated in his divine nature. But what was it like for his human nature to suffer death? And I think that's what Balthazar is trying to meditate on. What was that like for he who knew no sin to become sin? Right. That's it. And I think that there is, there's some, what is what is lost by just rejecting um, these these kind of more recent contemporary theological expressions? Well, there's something new that's being said here. Mm. We're looking at this thing in a new way. A court with the eyes of faith, we're meditating on Revelation. Maybe something new can be learned and said theologically after the 13th century. Maybe, hypothetically, just putting that out there, that maybe it is possible that somebody could meditate a life of prayer. I mean, this is a guy who, who led the spiritual exercises over 100 times through his life. I mean, he was constantly in prayer, uh, and he was undoubtedly a man of the church and ratzinger writes very similar things about the descent mm. right and john paul ii everybody is saying this is a catholic theologian this is a deeply catholic vision of reality but he's so grandiose and he's so powerful that it's just it just defies uh our kind of pettiness theological pettiness so yeah okay so two questions one sorry i know you got to go stay with me here father john i'm with you uh First question would be, um, one of my teachers in, in first theology, she said, uh, if, if, if you go wrong in one area, it's going to pervade your whole works. And so she was saying like, oh, Balthazar, uh, if he gets this wrong, um, in dare we hope, well, it probably pervades all his works. So just throw all of it out. Uh, how would you respond to that? Well, I think that there are sometimes, um, kind of things that are so structural and and so central to a teaching or, or to a thinker that it will penetrate and affect the way that he thinks about everything. Uh, but again, like, was he wrong? Mm. And was he a heretic? Or is he looking at this thing differently? And again, when they're in, going back to that beautiful Thomistic way of interpreting um, things, the principle of interpretation, we do it with reverence, then it's to say, maybe oh, maybe I'm not the one seeing what he's doing rightly. So mm. before I say, baby out with the bathwater, it's just not a good approach in general. I mean, if you're talking to anybody, go back to the airplane, okay? I'm talking to the 300-pound guy next to me, uh, and I'm just saying, 
Well, he just said something really weird. So obviously he has nothing to say. Because everything that it's it's in light of that, like let's say a guy, you know, we meet these fallen away Catholics all the time. They say something, and it's like, well, that's pretty fundamentally wrong. Um, but then then to go to the conclusion that this guy has nothing to teach me, mm-hmm. I just think that's a, just a really dangerous and and foolish way to live. Yep. And for some reason, it's theologians because we use technical language, and, and we think of ourselves as kind of lofty. We're just above the the, the dictates of charity. Um, for some reason, I don't know why we do that. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Last question would be, uh, those who, uh, haven't read much Balthazar, any Balthazar, what would you recommend to start with? Uh, Oh, great question. I got Larkin's shelf right here. Um, I would say if you want to dig into his theology, I would read explorations in theology, which is a collection of, and again, explorations. I mean, people are like, Oh, you know, it's like Skitzen. Skitzen is the German word, just sketches. Um, so read his explorations in theology. Uh, one of the volumes. Um, I also think that it's really scary to look at his 16 volume, uh, magnum opus, but glory. Of the Lord is absolutely volume. One is absolutely worth reading. It's a must. Um, and then he has a lot of really beautiful, um, other works, you know, my work is specifically with his Marian ecclesiology, which I love. Office of Peter, structure of the church, Christian state of life is an essential, I think, for everybody to read. Um, and then he's just got some beautiful smaller works on the Rosary, um, on Our Lady, Mary for today, types like this. If you're looking for something a little more kind of bite-sized and digestible, but just dig in and write us if you have any questions on this. Absolutely, awesome. Clean out the shed, cleaning it out. Dare we hope that von Balthasar is a heretic? <laughs> That's right. No, we do not hope that thing. Okay. So. Oh, I thought that's the title of the podcast. It is the title of the podcast. I was trying to be clever at the end here. All right, Shani, I got to run. Uh, shout outs. Miranda Perkins. Okay. So our friend, Father Tim Danher, uh, fielded this email, and he said, you got to give a shout out to this uh, awesome girl, Miranda Perkins, beginning her master's at Notre Dame this fall. Um and uh, he just said she deserves one. She wrote this just really beautiful email. Um, she's an evangelist for the podcast. And um, he said it'd be cool for you guys to uh, catch up months from now and, and hear her shout out. So, Miranda, thank you for listening. And uh, we hope we get to meet you sometime. That's right. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks for listening. Um, maybe two shout outs. Uh, there's so many to give, and it's hard to, <laughs> hard to keep up with everyone. Two shout outs, I would say Sam Bittner. And Mike Baird, yeah, uh, they get ordained deacons June twenty fourth, I believe. This comes out a month later. Uh, I know Sam Bittner is a avid podcast listener. Uh, I don't know if Mike Baird is. That's okay. Uh, but congratulations to you guys for being ordained deacons. And, and Jer- uh, Jerry Swain and Steve Baselli also we got to put on that list. Awesome. So shout out to all our new deacons. All our new deacons. Thanks for uh, laying down your life for the Lord. Well, thank you for letting me lecture at you for the last 45 minutes. I love it. It reminds me of class. This is good. This is a glimpse into what class is like. Um, and uh, But I, I really appreciate this topic. And thank you for letting me rehash uh, an old an old but very passionate one for me. So. This is an annual thing now. So, All right. We'll be uh, back next week and then hopefully uh, with Larry Chap uh, sometime soon. So God bless you. Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Thanks, everyone. Mm-hmm.